CD5 Vimes reached up and carefully pushed the end of Detritus's crossbow towards a less threatening direction. Inigo talked very fast in what seemed to Vimes to be a torrent of perfect dwarfish, although he was sure he heard the occasional <clears throat> He opened his leather case and produced a couple of documents fixed with big waxy seals. These were inspected with considerable suspicion. The dwarf pointed at Cherry and Detritus. Inigo flapped a hand impatiently, the universal symbol for dismissing that which is not important. More papers were examined. Eventually, with more universal body language, meaning, I could do something bad to you, but right now it's just too much bother, the dwarf waved Inigo away, gave Vimes a look that suggested that, against all physical evidence, Vimes was beneath him, and strode back to his troops. An order was barked. The dwarf set off again, leaving the road and heading off towards the forest. Well, that all seems sorted out, said Inigo, getting back into the coach. Miss Littlebottom was a, a bit of a sticking point, but a dwarf does respect very complicated documents. Something's up. He wouldn't say what it was. He wanted to search the coach. The hell with that! What for? Who knows? I persuaded him that we have diplomatic immunity. And what did you tell him about me? I tried to convince him that you were a bloody idiot, Your Grace. <clears throat> oh, really? Vimes heard Lady Sybil repress a laugh. It was necessary, believe me. Street dwarfish wasn't a good idea, Your Grace. But when I pointed out that you were an aristocrat, he... Um, I am not a... Well, I'm not really a... Yes, Your Grace. But if you'll be advised by me, a lot of diplomacy lies in appearing to be a lot more stupid than you are. You've made a good start, Your Grace, and now I think we'd better be moving. <clears throat> I'm glad to see you're being less deferential, Inigo, said Vimes, as they got underway again. Oh, well, Your Grace, I've got to know you better now. Gaspode had confused recollections of the rest of that night. The pack moved fast, and he realised that most of them were running ahead of carrots to flatten down the snow. It wasn't flat enough for Gaspode. Eventually, a wolf picked him up by the scruff of the neck and carried him bodily, while making muffled comments about the foul taste. The snow stopped after a while, and there was a slip of moonlight behind the clouds. And all around, near and far, was the howl. Occasionally the pack would stop, in a clearing, or on the crisp white brow of a hill, and join in. Gaspode limped to Angua while the cries went up around them. "'What's this for?' he said. "'Politics,' said Angua. Negotiation. We're crossing territories. Gaspode glanced at Gavin. He hadn't joined in the howl, but sat a little way off, regally dividing his attention between Carrot and the pack. He has to ask permission, he said. He has to make sure they'll let me through. Oh, that's given him problems? None that he can't bite through. Oh, uh, is the owl saying anything about me? Small, horrible, smelly dog. Ah, right. They set off again a few minutes later, down a long snow-crusted slope in the moonlight towards the forest, and Gaspode saw shadows angling fast across the snowfield towards them. For a moment he was flanked by two packs, the old and the new, and then their original escort dropped away. So, we've got a new honour guard, he thought, as he ran in the centre of a wall of blurred grey legs. Wolves we haven't met before. I just hope the howl added, doesn't taste nice. Then Carrot fell over in the snow. It was a moment before he pushed himself up again, 
the wolves circled uncertainly, occasionally glancing at Gavin. Gaspode caught up with Carrot, jumping awkwardly through the snow. You all right? Hard to run. I don't want to, you know, worry you or anything, whined Gaspode, but we're not exactly among friends here, know what I mean? Our Gavin isn't going to win the prize for the wolf with the waggiest tail anywhere. When did he last sleep? Angua demanded, pushing her way through the wolves. Dunno, really, said Gaspode. We've been moving pretty fast the last few days. No sleep, no food and no proper clothing, snarled Angua. Idiot! There was growling and whining from some of the wolves around Gavin. Gaspode sat down by Carrot's head and watched as Angua argued. He couldn't speak pure wolf and, besides, gesture and body language played a far greater part than it did in canine. But you didn't have to be bright to see that things weren't going well. There was definitely a lot of atmosphere in the atmosphere, and Gaspode had a feeling that, if things went all pear-shaped in a hurry, one small dog had all the survival chances of a chocolate kettle on a very hot stove. There was a lot of whining and growling. One wolf, Gaspode mentally named him Awkward, was not happy. It looked as though a number of wolves were agreeing with him. One of them bared its teeth at Angua. Then Gavin stood up. He shook some snowflakes off his coat, looked around in an off-hand fashion and padded towards Awkward. Gaspode felt every hair on his body stand on end. The other wolves crouched back. Gavin ignored them. When he was a few feet from Awkward, he put his head on one side and said, It was almost a pleasant noise, but right down inside Gaspode's bones it bounced a harmonic which said, At this point we could go two ways. There is the easy way, and that is very easy. You'll never know about the hard way. Awkward held eye contact for a while and then looked down. Gavin snarled something. Half a dozen of the wolves, led by Angua, loped off towards the forest. They returned twenty minutes later. Angua was human again, at least, Gaspode corrected himself, human-shaped, and the wolves were harnessed to a big dog sled. Borrowed it from a man in the village over the hill, she said, as it slid to a halt by Carrot. Nice of him, said Gaspode, and decided not to pursue the subject. I'm surprised to see wolves in harness, though. Well, this was the easy way, said Angua. It's odd, Gaspode mused as he lay in the sled alongside the slumbering carrot. He was so interested when Bum talked about the howl and how it could send messages right up into the mountains. If I was a suspicious dog, I'd wonder if he knew that she'd come back for him if he was really in trouble, if he decided to gamble everything on it. He poked his head out from under the blanket. Snow stung his eyes. Running alongside the sled, only a few feet away from Carrot and glowing silver in the moonlight, was Gavin. This is me, thought Gaspode, stuck between the humans and the wolves. It's a dog's life. This is the life, thought acting Captain Colon. Hardly any paperwork was coming up here now, and by dint of much effort he'd entirely cleared the backlog. It was a lot quieter, too. When Vimes was here, and Fred Colon suddenly found himself thinking the word Vimes without prefixing it with Mr., the main office was full of so much noise and bustle you could hardly hear yourself speak. Completely inefficient, that was. How could anyone hope to get anything done? He counted the sugar again. Twenty-nine. But he'd had two in his tea, so that was all right. Toughness was paying off. Colon went and opened his door a fraction so that he could just see down into the office. 
It was amazing how you could catch them out that way. Quiet. And neat, too. Every desk was clear. Much better than the mess you used to get. He went back to the desk and counted the sugar lumps. There were twenty-seven. Aha! Someone was trying to drive him mad. Well, two could play at that game. He counted the lumps again. There were twenty-six. And there was a knock at the door. This caused it to swing inwards and Colon to jump up in evil triumph. Aha! Burst in on me, eh? Oh! The O was because the knocker was Constable Dorful the Golem. He was taller than the doorway and strong enough to tear a troll in half. He'd never done this since he was an intensely moral being, but not even Colon was going to pick an argument with someone who had glowing red holes where his eyes should be. Ordinary golems would not harm a human because they had magic words in their head that ordered them not to. Dorful had no magic words, but he didn't harm people because he'd decided it wasn't moral. This left the worrying possibility that, given enough provocation, he might think again. Beside the golem was Constable Shoe, saluting smartly. "'We've come to pick up the wages, Chitty, sir,' he said. "'The what?' "'The wages, Chitty, sir, the monthly Chitty, sir, and then we take it to the palace and bring back the wages, sir.' "'I don't know anything about that.' "'I put it on your desk yesterday, sir.' "'Signed by Lord Vetinari, sir.' Colon couldn't hide the flicker in his eyes. The black ash in the fireplace was by now overflowing. Shoe followed his gaze. "'I haven't seen any such thing,' said Colon, while the colour drained from his face like a sucked ice lolly. "'I'm sure I did, sir,' said Constable Shoe. "'I wouldn't forget a thing like that, sir. In fact, I distinctly remember saying to Constable Visit.' "'Wash pot, I'm just going to take this.' "'Look, you can see I'm a busy man,' snapped Colon. "'Get one of the sergeants to sort it out.' "'There's no sergeants left except Sergeant Flint, sir, "'and he spends all his time going around asking people what he should be doing,' "'said Constable Shoe. "'Anyway, sir, it's the senior officer who must sign the chitty.' Colon stood up, leaning on his knuckles, and shouted, "'Oh, I must, must, eh? That's a nerve and new mystique. Must, eh? Most of you lot are lucky anyone even gives you a job. Bunch of zombies and loonies and lawn ornaments and rocks. I've had it up to ear with you.' Shoe leaned back out of range of the spittle. "'Then I'm afraid I must take this up with the Guild of Watchmen, sir,' he said. "'Guild of Watchmen? Ha! And since when has there been a Guild of Watchmen?' Dunno. What's the time now? said Corporal Nobbs, ambling into the room. Got to be a couple of hours at least. Morning, Captain. What are you doing here, Nobby? That's Mr. Nobbs to you, Captain, and I'm President of the Guild of Watchmen since you ask. There's no such bloody thing. All legit, Captain. Registered at the palace and everything. Amazing how people rush to join, too. He pulled out his grubby notebook. Got a few matters to take up with you if you have a moment. "'Well, I say a few.' "'I'm not putting up with this,' bellowed Colon, his face crimson. "'This is hay treason. You're all sacked. You're all—' "'We're all on strike,' said Nobby calmly. "'You can't go on strike while I'm sacking you.' "'Our strike headquarters are in the back room of the bucket in Gleam Street,' said Nobby. "'Here, that's May, Boozer. I forbid you to go on strike in my own pub.' We'll be there when you wish to talk terms. Come, brothers, we are now officially in a dispute situation. 
they marched out. Don't bother to come back, Colon shouted after them. Bjonk wasn't what Vimes had expected. In fact, he'd find it hard to say what he had expected, except that this wasn't it. It occupied a narrow valley with a white water river winding through it. There were city walls. They were not like those of Ankh Morpork, which had become at first a barrier to expansion and then a source of masonry for it. These had an inside and an outside. There were castles on the hills. There were castles on most hills in these parts. And there were high gates across the road. Detritus thumped on the side of the coach. Vimes stuck his head out. There's guys in the road, said the troll. They got halibuts. Vimes looked out of the windows. There were half a dozen guards, and they did indeed have halberds. What are they after? he said. I expect they'll also want to see our papers and make a search of the coaches, said Inigo. Papers are one thing, said Vimes, getting out of the coach, but no one is rummaging in our stuff. I know that trick. They're not looking for anything. They just want to show us who's boss. You come along and do the translating, he said. Don't worry, I'll be diplomatic. The two men barring the way did have helmets and they were holding weapons, but their uniforms did not conform to normal uniformity. No guards, Vimes thought, should be dressed in red, blue and yellow. People would be able to see them coming. Vimes liked a uniform you could lurk in. He pulled out his badge and held it up, advancing with an ingratiating smile. Just repeat this, Mr Skimmer, Vimes raised his voice. Hello, fellow officer. As you can see, I am Commander V... A blade swung round. If Vimes hadn't stopped, he'd have walked into it. Inigo stepped forward, leather case already open, one hand holding several impressive pieces of paper, mouth already framing some suitable sentences. A guard took one of the pieces of paper and stared at it. "'This is a studied insult,' said Inigo, contriving to speak out of the corner of his mouth while maintaining a smile. "'Someone wishes to see how you react. "'Them? No, we're being watched.' The paper was handed back. There was a terse conversation. "'The captain of the guard says there are special circumstances "'and he will search the coaches,' said Inigo. "'No,' said Vimes, taking in the expression on the captain's white face. "'I know when people are playing silly buggers, "'cause I've done it myself.' "'He pointed to the door of the coach. "'See this,' he said. "'Tell him this is an Ankh-Morpork crest, "'and this is an Ankh-Morpork coach, "'property of Ankh-Morpork. "'If they lay hands on it,' That will constitute an act of war against Ankh Morpork. Tell him that. He saw the man lick his lips nervously as Inigo translated. Poor sod, he thought. He didn't ask for this. He was probably expecting a quiet day on the gate. But someone gave him some orders. Inigo said, He says he's very sorry, but those are his instructions, and he quite understands if his grace wishes to make a complaint at the highest level. <coughs> A guard turned the handle of the coach door. Vimes slammed it shut. "'Tell him the war will start right now,' he said, "'and then it'll work its way up.' "'Your grace!' The guards looked at Detritus. It was quite hard to hold the peacemaker nonchalantly, and he wasn't even making the attempt. Vimes maintained eye contact with the captain of the guard. If the man had any sense, he'd realised that if Detritus fired the thing, it'd kill them all— besides sending the coach backwards at high speed. Please, just let him have the sense to know when to fold, he prayed.
In the corner of his ear, he could hear the guards whispering to one another. He caught the word willingness. The captain stepped back and saluted. He apologises for any inconvenience and hopes you will enjoy your stay in his beautiful city, said Inigo. He particularly hopes you will visit the chocolate museum in Prince Vodorny Square, where his sister works. Vimes saluted. Tell him I think he is an officer with a great future, he said. A future which, I trust, is going to very soon include opening the damn gates. The captain had nodded to the men before Inigo was halfway through the translation. Aha. Uh -huh. And ask him his name, he said. The man was bright enough not to respond until this had been translated. Captain Tantoni, Inigo said. I shall remember it, said Vimes. Oh, and tell him he has a fly on his nose. Tantony won a prize. His eyes barely flickered. Vimes grinned. As for the town itself, it was just a town. Roofs were steeper than in Ankh-Morpork. Some maniac with a fret saw had been allowed to amuse himself on the wooden architecture, and there was more paint than you saw back home. Not that this told you anything. Many a rich man had become rich by metaphorically not painting his house. The coaches bowled over the cobbles, not the right sort of cobbles, of course, Vimes knew that. The coach stopped again. Vimes stuck his head out of the window. Two rather scruffier guards had barred the road this time. Ah, I recognise this one, said Vimes grimly. I reckon that this time we've just met Kolonescu and Nobsky. He stepped out and walked up to them. Well? The fatter of the two hesitated and then held out his hand. Pisspot, he said. "'Inigo?' said Vimes, quietly, without turning his head. "'Ah,' said Inigo, after some muttered exchanges, "'now the problem seems to be Sergeant Detritus. "'No trolls are allowed in this part of town during the hours of daylight, apparently, "'without a passport signed by their owner. Uh, "'In Bionk the only trolls allowed are prisoners of war. "'They have to carry identification.' Detritus is a citizen of Ankh-Morpork and my sergeant, said Vimes. However, he is a troll. Perhaps in the interest of diplomacy you could write a short... Do I need a piss-pot? A passport? No, Your Grace. Then he doesn't either. Nevertheless, Your Grace, there is no nevertheless. But it may be advisable to... There's no advisable either. A few other guards had drifted over. Vimes was aware of watching eyes. He could be ejected by force, said Inigo. Now there's an experiment I wouldn't want to miss, said Vimes. Detritus made a rumbling noise. I don't mind going back if... Shut up, Sergeant. You're a free troll. That's an order. Vimes permitted himself another brief scan of the growing silent crowd, and he saw the fear in the eyes of the men with the halberds. They did not want to be doing this any more than the captain had. "'I'll tell you what, Inigo,' he said. "'Tell the guards that the ambassador from Ankh-Morpork "'commends them for their diligence, "'congratulates them on their dress sense, "'and will see that their instruction is obeyed forthwith. "'That should do it, shouldn't it?' "'Certainly, uh, Your Grace.' "'And now turn the coach around, Detritus. "'Coming, Inigo?' "'Inigo's expression changed rapidly. "'We passed an inn about ten miles back,' Vimes went on. "'Ought to make it by dark, do you think?' "'You can't go, Your Grace?' Vimes turned very slowly. "'Would you repeat that, Mr Skimmer?' "'I mean, we are leaving, Mr Skimmer.' 
What you do, of course, is up to you. He sat down inside the coach. Opposite him, Sybil made a fist and said, Well done. Sorry, dear, said Vimes, as the coach turned. It didn't look a very good inn. Serves them right, the little bullies, said Sybil. You showed them. Vimes glanced out and saw, at the edge of the crowd, a black coach with dark windows. He could make out a figure in the gloom within. The luckless guards were looking at it as if for instructions. It waved a gloved hand languidly. He started counting under his breath. After eleven seconds, Inigo trotted alongside the coach and jumped onto the running board. "'Your Grace, apparently the guards acted quite without authority and will be punished.' "'No, they didn't.' I was looking at them. They'd been given an order, said Vimes. Nevertheless, diplomatically, it would be a good idea to accept the expan... So that the poor buggers can be hung up by their thumbs, said Vimes. No, you just go back and tell whoever's given the orders that all our people can go anywhere they like in this city. Do you see? Whatever shape they are. Um, I don't think you can actually demand that, sir. Those lads had old burly and strong in the arm weapons, Mr Skimmer. Made in Ank Morpork. So did the men on the gate. Trade, Mr Skimmer. Isn't that part of what diplomacy is all about? You go back and talk to whoever's in the black carriage, and then you'd better get them to lend you a horse, because I reckon we'll have gone a little way by then. Uh, you could, perhaps, wait. Wouldn't dream of it. In fact, the coach was outside the gates of the town before Skimmer caught up with it again. There will not be a problem with either of your requests, he panted and for a moment there appeared to be a touch of admiration in his expression. "'Good man, tell Detritus to turn around again, would you?' "'You're grinning, Sam,' said Sybil as Vimes sat back. "'I was just thinking that I could take to the diplomatic life,' said Vimes. "'There is something else,' said Inigo, getting into the coach. "'There's some historical artefact owned by the dwarfs, and there's a rumour. "'How long ago was the scone of stone stolen?' Inigo's mouth stayed open. Then he shut it, and his eyes narrowed. How in the world did you know that, Your Grace? <clears throat> By the pricking of my thumbs, said Vimes, his face carefully blank. I've got very odd thumbs when it comes to pricking. Really? Oh, yes. Dogs had a much easier sex life than humans, Gaspo decided. That was something to look forward to, if he ever managed to have one. It wasn't going to start here, that was definite. The female wolves snapped at him if he came too close, and they weren't just warnings either. He was having to be very careful where he trod. The really odd thing about human sex, though, was the way it went on even when people were fully clothed and sitting on opposite sides of a fire. It was in the things they said and did not say, the way they looked at one another and looked away. The packs had changed again overnight. The mountains were higher, the snow was crisper. Most of the wolves were sitting at some distance from the fire Carrot had made. Just enough distance, in fact, to establish that they were proud, wild creatures who didn't have to rely on this sort of thing, but close enough to get the benefit. And then there was Gavin, sitting a little way off, turning to look from one to the other. Gavin's people hate my family, Angua was saying. I told you, it's always wolves who suffer when werewolves get too powerful. Werewolves are smarter at escaping from hunters. That's why wolves much prefer vampires. Vampires leave them alone. Werewolves sometimes hunt wolves. I'm surprised, said Carrot. Angua shrugged. Why? They hunt humans, don't they? 
We're not nice people, Carrot. We're all pretty dreadful. But my brother Wolfgang is something special. Father's frightened of him, and so's mother if she'd only admit it. But she thinks he'll make the clan powerful, so she indulges him. He drove my other brother away and killed my sister. How? He said it was an accident. Poor little Elsa. She was a, a Yenork, just like André. That's a werewolf that doesn't change, you know. I'm sure I've mentioned it. Our family throws them up from time to time. Wolfgang and I were the only classic bimorphs in the litter. Elsa looked human all the time, even at full moon. André was always a wolf. You mean you had a human sister and a wolf brother? No, Carrot. They were both werewolves. But the... well, the little switch inside them didn't work. Do you understand? They stayed the same shape. In the old days, the clan would kill off a Yenuk quickly. And Wolfgang is a traditionalist when it comes to nastiness. He says they made the blood impure. You see, a Yenuk would go off and be a human or be a wolf, but they'd still be carrying the werewolf blood. And then they'd marry and have children or pups. And, well, that's where the fairy tale monsters come from. People with a bit of wolf and wolves with that extra capacity for violence that is so very human. She sighed and glanced momentarily at Gavin. But Elsa was harmless. After that, André didn't wait for it to happen to him. He's a sheepdog over in Borogravia now. Doing well, I hear. Wins championships, she added sourly. She poked the fire aimlessly. Wolfgang's got to be stopped. He's plotting something with some of the dwarfs. They meet in the forest, Gavin says. He sounds very well in form for a wolf, said Carrot. Angua almost snarled at him. He's not stupid, you know. He can understand more than eight hundred words. A lot of humans get by on less. And he's got a sense of smell that's almost as good as mine. The wolves see everything. The werewolves are out all the time now. They're chasing people down. The game, we call it. The wolves get the blame. It looks like they're breaking the arrangement. And there's been these meetings, right out in the forest where they think no one will see them. Some dwarfs have got some sort of nasty scheme by the sound of it. They asked Wolfgang for help. That's like asking a vulture to pick your teeth. What can you do? said Carrot. Even your parents can't control him. We used to fight when we were younger. Rough and tumble, he'd call it. But I could send him off howling. Wolfgang hates to think there's anyone who can beat him, so I don't think he'll relish the thought of me turning up. He's got plans. This part of Überwald has always, well, worked because no one was too powerful. But if the dwarfs start squabbling amongst themselves, then Wolfgang's the lad to take advantage, with his stupid uniforms and his stupid flag. I don't think I want to see you fighting, though. Then you can look the other way. I didn't ask you to follow me. Do you think I'm proud of this? I've got a brother who's a sheepdog. A champion sheepdog, said Carrot earnestly. Gaspode watched Angua's expression. It was one you'd never get on a dog. You mean that, she said at last. You actually mean it, don't you? You really do. And if you'd met him, it wouldn't worry you, would it? To you, everyone's a person. I have to sleep in a dog basket seven nights a month, and that doesn't worry you either, does it? No, you know it doesn't. It should do. Don't ask me why, but it should do. You're so unthinkingly nice about it, and sooner or later a girl can have too much nice. I don't try to be nice. I know, I know. I just wish you'd... Oh, I don't know. Complain a bit. Well, not exactly complain, just sigh or something. Why? Because, 
because it'd make me feel better. Oh, it's too hard to explain. It's probably a werewolf thing. I'm sorry. And don't be sorry all the time, either. Gaspode curled up so close to the fire that he steamed. Dogs had it a lot better, he decided. The building that was to be the embassy was set back from the road in a quiet side street. They rattled under an arch into a small rear courtyard containing some stables. It reminded Vimes of a large coaching inn. It's really only a consulate at the moment, said Inigo, leafing through his papers. We should be met by... Ah, yes, Wando sleeps. Been here for several years. <clears throat> Behind the coaches, a pair of gates swung shut. There was the sound of heavy bolts shooting home. Vimes stared at the apparition that came limping back towards the coach door. He looks it, he said. Oh, I don't think this is... A good evening, masters, mistress, said the figure. Welcome to Ankh-Morpork. I'm Igor. Igor who, said Inigo. Just Igor, sir. Always just Igor, said Igor calmly, unfolding the step. I'm the odd job man. You don't say, said Vimes, mesmerised. Have you had a terrible accident? said Lady Sibyl. I did spill tea down my throat this morning, said Igor. Kind of you to notice. Where's Mr. Sleeps? said Inigo. I'm afraid Master Sleeps is nowhere to be found. I was rather hoping you would know what had happened to him. Yes, said Inigo. <coughs> we assumed he was here. He left rather urgently two weeks ago, said Igor. He did not vouchsafe to me where he was going. Do go inside, and I will see to the baggage. Vimes glanced up. A little bit of snow was falling now, but there was enough light to see that above them, across the whole courtyard, was an iron mesh. With the bolted doors and the walls of the building all around, they were in a cage. Just a little left over from the old days, said Igor cheerfully. Nothing to worry about, sir. What a fine figure of a man, said Sybil weakly as they stepped inside. More than one man by the look of him. Sam? Sorry. I'm sure his art's in the right place. Good. Or someone's art, anyway. Sam, really? All right, all right. But you must admit, he does look a bit... odd. None of us can help the way we're made, Sam. He looks as if he tried. Good grief. Oh, dear, said Lady Sybil. Vimes was not against hunting, if only because Ankh-Morpork seldom offered any better game than the large rats you got along the waterfront but the sight of the walls of the new embassy might have been enough to make the keenest hunter take a step back and cry, Oh, I say, hold on. The previous occupant had been keen on hunting, shooting and fishing, and to have covered every single wall with the resultant trophies, he must have been doing all three at the same time. Hundreds of glass eyes, obscenely alive in the light of the fire in the huge hearth, stared down at Vimes. It's just like my grandfather's study, said Lady Sybil. There was a stag's head in there that used to frighten the life out of me. There's just about everything here. Oh, no. By gods, whispered Lady Sybil. Vimes looked around desperately. Detritus was just entering, carrying some of the trunks. Stand in front of it, Vimes hissed. I'm not that tall, Sam, or that wide. The troll looked up at them, then at the trophies, and then grinned. It's colder up here, Vimes thought, 
he's quicker on the uptake. Detritus's silicon-based brain was, as with most trolls, highly sensitive to changes in temperature. When the thermometer was very low, he could be dangerously intellectual. Even Nobby won't play poker with him in the winter. Damn! Something wrong, said Detritus. Vime sighed. What was the point? He'd spot it sooner or later. I'm sorry about this, Detritus, he said, standing aside. Detritus looked at the horrible trophy and nodded. Yeah, there used to be a lot of that sort of thing in the old days, he said calmly, putting down the luggage. They wouldn't be the real diamond teeth, of course. They'd take them out and put bigger glass ones in. You don't mind, said Lady Sybil. It's a troll's head. Someone actually mounted a troll's head and put it on the wall. Ain't mine, said Detritus. But it's so horrible. Detritus stood in thought for a moment and then opened the stained wooden box that contained all he had felt it necessary to bring. This is the old country after all, he said. So if it make you feel better... He pulled out a smaller box and rummaged among what appeared to be bits of rock and cloth until he found something yellowy-brown and round, like a shallow cup. Should have bunged it away, he said. But it's all I got to remember my old granny by. She kept things in it. It's a bit of human skull, isn't it? said Vimes at last. Yep. Whose? Anyone asked that troll dare his name? said Detritus, and the glint in his voice had a brittle edge to it for a moment. Then he carefully put the bowl away. Things were different in them days. Now you don't chop our heads off, and we don't make drums out of your skin. Everything is unky-dory. That's all we have to know. He picked up the boxes again, and followed Lady Sybil towards the staircase. Vimes took another look at the trophy head. The teeth were longer, far longer than they'd be on a real troll. A hunter had had to be very brave, and very lucky, to go up against a fighting troll and survive. It'd be so much easier to go after an old one, and later replace the ground-down stumps with sparkly fangs. My gods, the things we do. Igor, he said as the odd job man lurched past under the weight of two more bags. Yes, your excellency? I'm an excellency, said Vimes to Inigo. Yes, your grace. And still my grace as well? Yes, your grace. You are his grace, his excellency, the Duke of Ankh, Commander Sir Samuel Vimes, your grace. Hang on, hang on. His grace cancels out the sir, I know that. It's like having an ace in poker. Um, strictly speaking, this is true, your grace, but great store is set by titles here, and it is best to play with a full deck. <clears throat> I was once blackboard monitor at school, said Vimes sharply, for a whole term. Would that help? Dame Venting said no one could clean a blackboard like me. A useful fact, your grace, which may possibly be helpful in the event of a tie-break, <coughs> said Inigo, his face carefully blank. We, Igor, have always preferred master, said Igor. What was it you were acquiring? Vimes gestured towards the heads that covered every wall. I want them taken down as soon as possible. I can do this, can't I, Mr. Skimmer? You are the ambassador, sir. <clears throat> well, they're coming down, all of them. Igor gave the camphor-smelling multitude a worried look. Even the swordfish? Even the swordfish, said Vimes firmly. And the snow leopards? Both of them, yes. What about the troll? Especially the troll. See to it. 
Igor could have been said to have looked as if his world had fallen down around his ears, were it not for the fact that he already looked as if this had happened. What do you want to do with them, Martha? That's up to you. Throw them in the river, maybe. Ask Detritus about the troll. Maybe it should be buried or something. Is there any supper? There's Frith Walago, a kind of pastry made from curtains. A noggy, buckwheat dumplings stuffed with stuff. Thkloth, bread made from parsnips and widely considered to be much tastier than the dull wheat kind. Thwine, fleth, and thothageth, said Igor, still clearly upset about the trophies. I'll thop tomorrow if her ladyship gives me instructions. Is swine flesh the same as pork? said Vimes. People in drought-stricken areas would have paid good money to have Igor pronounce sausages. Mm, yes, said Inigo. And what's in the sausages? Uh, meat, said Igor, looking as though he was ready to run. Good, we'll give them a try. Vimes went upstairs and followed the sound of conversation until he reached a bedroom where Sybil was laying clothes on a bed the size of a small country. Cheery was assisting her. The walls were carved panels of wood. The bed was carved panels of wood. And the mad fretworker had been hard at work here, too. Only the floors weren't wood. They were stone and radiated cold. "'It's a bit like the inside of a cuckoo clock, isn't it?' said Sybil. "'Cherry has volunteered to be my lady's maid for now.' Cherry saluted. "'Why not?' said Vimes. After a day like this, a lady's maid with a long flowing beard seemed perfectly normal. "'The floors are a bit chilly, though.' "'Tomorrow I'll measure up for some carpets,' said Sybil firmly. "'I know we won't be here long, but we ought to leave something for the next people.' "'Yes, dear, that would be a good idea.' "'There's a bathroom through there,' said Sybil, nodding. "'There's hot springs near here, apparently. "'They pipe them in. You'll feel better for a hot bath.' Ten minutes later Vimes was happy to agree. The water was a funny colour, and smelled a little of what he would politely call bad eggs, but it was good and hot and he could feel it drawing the tension out of his muscles. The distressing scent of second-hand baked beans sloshed around him as he lay back. At the other end of the huge bath, the lump of pumice stone that he'd been using to rasp the dead skin off his feet banged against the side. Vimes watched it unseeing while he filed the thoughts of the day. Things were starting to smell just like the bathwater. The scone of stone had been stolen, had it? Now there was a coincidence. It had been a complete shot in the dark, but lately he was on the lucky side when it came to nocturnal targets. Someone had pinched the replica scone, and now the real one had gone missing, and someone in Ankh-Morpork who was good at making rubber moulds had been found dead. You didn't need the brains of detritus and a snowdrift to suspect a connection. A recollection nagged at him. Someone had said something, and he'd thought it odd at the time, but then something else had happened, and it had gone out of his mind. Something about... A welcome to bonk, only... Well, he was here, no doubt about that. Absolute confirmation of the fact was brought forth half an hour later at supper. Vimes cut into a sausage and stared. What is in these, all this pink stuff? he demanded. Um, that's meat, Your Grace, said Inigo on the other side of the table. Well, where's the texture? Where's the white bits and the yellow bits and those green bits you always hope are herbs? To a connoisseur here, Your Grace, an Ankh-Morpork sausage would not be considered a sausage. <coughs> oh, really? So what would he call it? A loaf, Your Grace, or 
possibly a log. Here a butcher can be hanged if his sausages are not all meat, and at that it must be from a named domesticated animal, and I perhaps should add that by named I do not mean that it should have been called Spot or Ginger. <coughs> I am sure that if your grace would prefer the more genuine Ankh-Morpork taste, Igor could make up some side dishes of stale bread and sawdust. Thank you for that patriotic comment, said Vimes. However, these are OK, I suppose. They just came as a bit of a shock, that's all. No. He put his hand over his mug to prevent Igor from filling it with beer. Is there something wrong, master? Just water, please, said Vimes. No beer. The master does not drink beer? No, and perhaps in a mug without a face on it? He took another look at the stein. Why has it got a lid, by the way? Are you afraid of the rain getting in? I've never been quite certain of that one, said Inigo, as Igor shuffled off. From observation, though, I believe the purpose of the stein is to stop the beer being spilled while using the mug to conduct the singing. <coughs> ah, the old quaffing problem, said Vimes. What a clever idea. Sybil patted him on the knee. You're not in Ankh-Morpork any more, dear, she said. Now we're alone, Your Grace, said Inigo, leaning closer. I'm very worried about Mr. Sleeps, the acting consul, you remember? He seems to have vanished. <coughs> Some of his personal items have gone, too. Holiday? Not at a time like this, sir. And there was a thud of wood against wood as Igor re-entered, pointedly carrying a stepladder. Inigo sat back. Vimes found that he was yawning. "'We'd better talk about that in the morning,' he said, as the ladder was dragged towards the horrible hunting trophies. "'It's been a long day, what with one thing and another.' "'Of course, Your Grace.' The bed's mattress was so soft that Vimes sank into it nervously, afraid it might close over the top of his head. That was just as well, because the pillow was... Well, everyone knew a pillow was a sack full of feathers, didn't they? Not an apprentice eider down like this thing. "'Just fold it up, Sam.' said Sybil from the depths of the mattress. Good night. Good night. Sam. There was a snore from Sam Vimes. Sybil sighed and turned over. Vimes awoke a few times to the sound of thuds from downstairs. Snow leopards, he muttered and drifted away. There was a louder crash. Moose, murmured Lady Sybil. Elk, mumbled Vimes. No, definitely moose. Sometime later there was a muffled scream, a thud, and a sound very much like the sound made when a huge wooden ruler is held against a desk and twanged. "'Swordfish,' said Sam and Sybil together, and went back to sleep. "'You should present your credentials to the rulers of Bionk,' said Inigo in the morning. Vimes was looking out of the window. Two guards in the rainbow-coloured uniforms were standing stiffly to attention outside the embassy. "'What are they doing here?' he said. "'Guarding,' said Inigo. "'Guarding who from what?' "'Just generally guarding. <clears throat> "'I suppose it's thought that guards give such a finished look to an important building.' "'What was that you said about credentials?' "'They're just formal letters from Lord Veterinari confirming your appointment. <clears throat> "'The law is a little complex, but at the moment the order of precedence is the future low king, the Lady Margolotta, and the Baron von Überwald. Each, of course, will pretend that you are not calling on the other two. It's called the Arrangement. It's an awkward system, but it keeps the peace. 
If I understood your briefing, said Vimes, still watching the guards, in the days of Imperial Oberwald, the whole bloody show was run by the werewolves and the vampires, and everyone else was lunch. Somewhat simplistic, but broadly true, <clears throat> said Inigo, brushing some dust off Vimes's shoulder. And then it all broke up, and the dwarfs became powerful, because there's dwarfs from one end of Oberwald to the other, and they all keep in touch. Their system certainly survives political upheaval, yes. And then what was it? A diet of beetles? The diet of bugs. <clears throat> diet being an Uberwaldian word for meeting, and bugs being an important town further upriver, famous for its pastries made from flax. Everyone came to an arrangement. No one would wage war on any of the others, and everyone could live in peace. No garlic to be grown, no silver to be mined, and the werewolves and vampires promised that those things wouldn't be needed. <coughs> Seems a bit trusting, said Vimes. It appears to have worked. <coughs> what did the humans think about it all? Well, humans have always been a bit of background noise in the history of Uberwald, Your Grace. Must be a bit dull for the undead, though. No, the bright ones know the old days can't come back. Ah, oh, well, that's always the trick, isn't it? Finding the bright ones. Vimes put on his helmet. And what are the dwarfs like? The future low king is considered pretty clever, Your Grace. How <clears throat> does he stand on Ankh-Morpork? He can take Ankh-Morpork or leave it alone, Your Grace. On balance, I believe he doesn't much like us. I thought it was Albrecht who didn't like us. No, Your Grace... Albrecht is the one who would be happy to see Ankh-Morpork burned to the ground. Rhys merely wishes we didn't exist. I thought he was one of the good guys. Your Grace, I did hear you express some negative sentiments about Ankh-Morpork on the way here. <coughs> yeah, but I live there. I'm allowed to. That's patriotic. Across the whole of the world, Your Grace, there inexplicably appear to be definitions of... <coughs> Good guy, which do not automatically mean likes Ankh Morpork. You will find out, I dare say. The other two are a lot easier to deal with. It may have been the Lady Margolotta who tried the little trick with the guards last night. She was the one who got me to bring you back, anyway. She has invited you for drinks. Oh, she's a vampire. <laughs> what? Inigo sighed. Your Grace. I thought you understood. Vampires are simply part of Uberwald. That is where they belong. I'm afraid this is something you will have to come to terms with. I understand that now they obtain blood by arrangement. Some people are impressed by a title, Your Grace. Good. Rafe. Quite so. In any case, you will be safe. Remember your diplomatic immunity. <laughs> I didn't quite see that working in the Willingness Pass the other day. No, they were common bandits. Really? As your man sleeps turned up, haven't you taken this to the watch here? There's no watch here, as you understand the term. You saw them. They're gate guards, enforcers for the city rulers, <coughs> not officers of the law, but inquiries are being made. Does Sybil come with me for this bit? said Vimes, and thought... We were guards like that, not so long ago. It is usually done by the new ambassador and his guards. Well, Detritus is staying here to keep an eye on her, all right? She said this morning she really thinks the place would be better for some decent carpet. 
and there's no stopping her when she's in a tape-measure mood. I'll take Cheery and one of the lads from outside for the look of the thing. I assume you're coming. I won't be required, sir. <clears throat> the new coachman knows the way. Morporkian is the diplomatic language after all, and I shall be making inquiries. Delicate ones? Indeed, Your Grace. If he's been killed, won't that be an act of war? Yes and no, Your Grace. What? Sleeps was, is our man. Inigo looked awkward. It would depend on exactly where he was and what he was doing. Vimes gave him a blank look, and then the penny dropped and operated his brain. Spying? Acquiring information. Everyone does it. <clears throat> yeah, but if you find a diplomat going too far, you just send him home with a sharp note, don't you? Around the circle, see your grace, that is the case. Here they may have a different approach. Something rather sharper than a note. Exactly. <clears throat> One of the guards was Captain Tantony. There was some minor difficulty, but the argument that, since he was guarding Vimes, he might as well be where Vimes was, eventually carried some weight. Tantony had the look of an agonisingly logical man. He kept giving Vimes curious looks as the coach rattled out of the town. Beside him sat Cheery with her legs dangling. Vimes noticed, although it was not the kind of thing he generally made a habit of noticing, that the shape of her breastplate had been subtly altered, probably by the same armour that Angua went to, to indicate that the chest underneath it was not quite the same shape of chest that you got under the armour of, say, Corporal Nobbs. Although, of course, probably no one had a chest the same shape as that of Corporal Nobbs. She was wearing her high-heeled iron boots, too. "'Look, you don't have to come,' he said out loud. "'Yes, I do.' I mean, I could go and get detritus instead, although I suppose there'd be even more upshot if I took a troll into a dwarf mine. I mean, rather than a... 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 Girl, said Cheery, helpfully. Eh, uh, yes. Vimes felt the coach slow to a halt, even though they hadn't left the town yet, and he looked out. In front of them, across a small square, was a fort of sorts, but with much larger gates than you'd expect for its size. As Vimes stared at them, they were swung open from within. Inside was a slope, all the fort consisted of were four walls around a large, sloping tunnel. "'The dwarfs live underneath the town,' he said, as the light from outside was gradually replaced by the infrequent glow of torches. But they clearly showed the coach was rattling past a long, long line of stationary carts. The pools of light revealed horses and drivers talking in groups. "'Under quite a lot of Uberwald,' said Cheery. "'This is just the nearest entrance, sir.' We'll probably have to stop in a minute because the horses don't like... Ah! The coach stopped again, and the coachman banged on the side to indicate that this was the end of the line. The queue of carts wound off down another tunnel, but the coach had stopped in a small cave with a big door. A couple of dwarfs were waiting there. They had axes slung across their backs, although by dwarf standards this counted merely as politely dressed rather than heavily armed. Their attitude, however, was in the international language of people guarding gates everywhere. Commander Sam Vimes, Ank Morpork Sip. Ambassador from Ank Morpork, said Vimes, handing one of them his papers. At least it was not hard to assume a lofty air with dwarfs. To his surprise, the document was read thoroughly, one dwarf looking over the other one's shoulder and pointing out interesting subclauses. The official seal was carefully examined. One guard pointed to Cheery. Crack! 
My official guard, said Vimes. Included in associated members of staff on page two, he added helpfully. Must search thy coach, said the guard. No, diplomatic immunity, said Vimes. Tell em, Cheery. They listened to Cheery's urgent dwarfish. Then the other guard, whose face had indicated that there was something on his mind and it was jumping up and down, nudged his companion and pulled him aside. There was a torrent of whispers. Vimes couldn't understand, but he caught the word williness and shortly afterwards the word Hagrag, dwarfish for thirty. Oh, gods, he said. And a dog? Good guess, sir, said Cheery. The document was handed back hurriedly. Vimes could read the body language, even written smaller than usual. There was probably an expensive problem here, so the guards were inclined to leave it to someone who earned more money than them. One of them pulled a bell rope by the door. After some time, the door slid open, revealing a small room. "'We have to go in, sir,' said Cheery. "'But there's no other doors. "'It's all right, sir.' Vimes stepped inside. The dwarves slid the door back, leaving them in the room, which was lit by a single candle. "'Some kind of waiting room,' said Vimes. Somewhere far off, something went plonk. The floor trembled for a moment, and then Vimes had an uneasy sensation of movement. "'The room moves,' he said. "'Yes, sir. "'Several hundred feet down, probably.' I think it's all done by counterweights. They stood silently, unsure of what to say, as walls around them creaked and groaned. Then there was a rattle, a passing sensation of weight, and the room stopped moving. Wherever we're headed, keep your ears open, said Vimes. Something's going on, I can feel it. The door slid back. Vimes looked out onto the night sky underground. The stars were all around him, below him. "'I think we went down too far,' he said, and then his brain made sense of what his eyes had seen. The moving room had brought them out somewhere on the side of a huge cave. He was looking at a thousand points of candlelight, spread out on the cavern floor and in other galleries. Now that he could grasp the scale of things, he realised that many of them were moving. The air was full of one huge sound made up of thousands of voices echoed and re-echoed. Occasionally a shout or a laugh would stand out, but mostly it was just an endless sea of sound beating on the shores of the eardrum. "'I thought you people lived in little mines,' said Vimes. "'Well, I thought humans lived in little cottages, sir,' said Cheery, taking a candle from a large rack beside the door and lighting it. "'And then I saw Ank Morpork.' There was something recognisable about the way the lights were moving, a whole constellation of them was heading in towards one invisible wall, where reflected lights now indicated very faintly the mouth of a large tunnel. In front of it was a row of lights. Think of it as a lot of people heading for something that one row of people was guarding. "'People down here aren't happy,' said Vimes. "'That looks like a mob to me. Look, you can tell by the way they move.' "'Commander Vimes!' he turned. In the gloom he could make out several dwarfs, each with a candle fixed to his helmet. In front of them was, presumably, another dwarf. He'd seen dwarfs like this in Ankh Morpork, but always scurrying away. This was a deep-down dwarf. The robe it was wearing was made of overlapping leather plates. Instead of the small round iron helmet which Vimes had always thought dwarfs were born with, it had a pointed leather hat with more leather flaps all around it. The one at the front had been tied up, to allow the wearer to look out at the world, or at least that part of it that was underground. 
the general effect was of a mobile cone. Er, uh, that's me. Welcome to Schmelzberg, Your Excellency. I am the king's Jara Hakhaga, which in your language you would call... But Vimes's lips had been moving fast as he tried to translate. Ideas taster, he said. Huh? That would be a way of putting it, yes. My name is Dee. Would you care to follow me? This should not take long. The figure swept away. One of the other dwarfs prodded Vimes very gently, indicating that he should follow. The sound from far below redoubled. Someone was yelling. Is there a problem? said Vimes, catching up with the fast-moving Dee. We have no problems. Ah, he's already lied to me, thought Vimes. We're being diplomatic. Vimes trailed after the dwarf through more caves, or tunnels. It was hard to tell, because in the darkness, Vimes could only rely on a sense of the space around him. Occasionally they passed the lighted entrance to another cave or tunnel. Several guards, with candles on their helmets, stood at each one. The well-honed copper's radar was beeping at him continuously. Something bad was going on. He could smell the tension, the sense of quiet panic. The air was thick with it. Occasionally other dwarfs scuttled past, distracted on some mission. Something very bad. People didn't know what to do next, so they were trying to do everything. And in the middle of this, important officers had to stop what they were doing because some idiot from some distant city had to hand over a piece of paper. Eventually, a door opened in the darkness. It led into a large, roughly oblong cave that, with its book-lined walls and paper-strewn tables, had the look of an office about it. Do be seated, Commander. A match burst into life. One candle was lit, all lost and alone in the dark. We do try to make guests feel welcome, said Dee, scuttling behind his desk. He pulled off his pointed hat and, to Vimes's amazement, put on a pair of thick smoked glasses. You had papers, he said. Vimes handed them over. It says here, His Grace, the dwarf said after reading them for a while. Yep, that's me. And there's a sir. That's me too. And an excellency. Afraid so. Vimes narrowed his eyes. I was blackboard monitor for a while too. There was a sound of angry voices from behind a door at the far end of the room. What does a blackboard monitor do? said Dee, raising his voice. What? Er, uh, I had to clean the blackboard after lessons. The dwarf nodded. The voices grew louder, more intense. Dwarfish was such a good language to be annoyed in. Erasing the teachings when they were learned, said Dee, shouting to be heard. Er, uh, yes, a task given only to the trustworthy. Could be, yes. Dee folded up the letter and handed it back, glancing briefly at Cherry. Well, these seem to be in order, he said. Would you care for a drink before you go? Sorry, I thought I had to present myself to your king. The swearing from the other side of the door was threatening to burn through the woodwork. Oh, that won't be necessary, said Dee. At the moment, he should not be bothered with... Trivial matters, said Vimes. I thought it was how the thing ought to be done. I thought dwarfs always did the thing that ought to be done. At the moment, it would not be advisable, said Dee, raising his voice again over the noise. I'm sure you understand. Let's assume I'm very stupid, said Vimes. I assure you, Your Excellency, that what I see the king sees, and what I hear the king hears.
That's certainly true at the moment, isn't it? D drummed his fingers on his desk. Your Excellency, I have spent only long enough in your city to gain a general insight into your ways, but I might feel you are making fun of me. May I speak freely? From what I have heard of you, your monitorship, you usually do. Have you found the scon of stone yet? The expression on Dee's face told Vimes that he had scored, and that, almost certainly, the next thing the dwarf said would be another lie. What a strange and untruthful thing to say! There is no possibility that the scone could have been stolen. This has been firmly declared. This is not a lie we would wish to hear repeated. You told me I... Vimes tried. By the sound of it, there was a fight going on behind the door now. The scone will be seen by all at the coronation. This is not a matter for Ank, Morpork or anyone else. I protest at this intrusion into our private affairs. I merely... Nor do we have to show the scone to any prang troublemaker. It is a sacred trust and well guarded. Vimes kept silent. D was better than Dunnit Duncan. Every person leaving the scone cave is carefully watched. The scone cannot be removed. It is perfectly safe. D was shouting now. Ah, I understand, said Vimes quietly. Good. So, you haven't found it yet, then? D opened his mouth shut it again, and then slumped back in his seat. I think, Your Grace, that you had better... The door at the other end of the room rolled back. Another dwarf, cone-shaped in his robes, stamped out, stopped, glared around him, went back through the door again, shouted some afterthoughts to whoever was beyond, and then made to head out of the room. He was brought up short when he almost walked into Vimes. The dwarf tilted its head to look up at him. There was no real face there, just a suggestion of the glint of angry eyes between the leather flaps. Aranak Moporak! Yes? Vimes didn't understand the words that followed, but the nasty tone was unmistakable. The important thing was to keep smiling. That was the diplomatic way. Why, thank you, he said, and may I say it... There was a grunt from the dwarf. He'd seen cheery. Ha-ak! he shouted. Vimes heard a gasp. There were other dwarfs clustered around the doorway. Then he glanced down at Cheery. Her eyes were shut. She was trembling. "'Who is this dwarf?' he said to Dee. "'This is Albrecht Albrechtson,' said the ideas taster. "'The runner-up?' "'Yes,' said Dee, hoarsely. "'Then can you tell the creature that if he uses that word again in the presence of myself or any of my staff, there will be, as we diplomats say, repercussions? Wrap that up in diplomacy and give it to him, will you?' The corners of Vimes's ears picked up a suggestion that not every dwarf listening was ignorant of the language. A couple of dwarfs were already heading purposefully towards them. Dee babbled a stream of hysterical dwarfish, just as the other dwarfs caught up with the gaping Albrecht and led him quietly but firmly away, but not before one of them had whispered something to the ideas taster. "'The... er... Uh, the king wishes to see you,' he mumbled. Vimes looked towards the doorway. More dwarfs were hurrying through it now. Some of them were dressed in what Vimes thought of as normal dwarf clothing, others in the heavy black leathers of the deep-down clans, all of them glared at him as they went past. Then there was just empty floor all the way to the door. "'Do you come too?' he said. "'Not unless he asks for me,' said Dee. 
I wish you luck, your monitorship. Beyond the door was a room of bookshelves, stretching up, stretching away. Here and there a candle merely changed the density of the darkness. There were lots of them, though, punctuating the distance. Vimes wondered how big this room must be. In here is a record of every marriage, every birth, every death, every movement of a dwarf from one mine to another, the succession of the king of each mine, every dwarf's progress through Kazakra, mining claims, the history of famous axes, and other matters of note, said a voice behind him. And perhaps most importantly, every decision made under dwarf law for fifteen hundred years is written down in this room, look you.' 